Morning. I want some of you guys, actually I want all of you to go back in your minds with me. Some of you are going to have to go back a little bit farther. Some of you just as uh, as recent as last week. But I want you to remember a time when you were studying for a test. You were assigned a test, some exam, and it could even be work. You're assigned, you're assigned some brief, and you need to familiarize yourself with the material. You go home. You open the book. You're going through the material. You read it over and over again, and you think, I got it. Close the book. You go back home or you go about your business a couple days, maybe a week later, and you show up for the test. Answer sheet's out. Questions are out. The book is closed. The Google machine is turned off. And the questions start coming. And then you try to remember what it is you knew or you thought you knew. You had it. It was there. The material was in front of you. Where's it at now? You understood it. There's actually a term for this, and it's called illusions of competence. <laughs> All right? Illusions of competence, that explains a lot of my uh, academic history. In her book, A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel in Mathematics when you've, or Math and Science when you flunked college algebra, uh, Dr. Oakley, she talks about this study. It's a, it's a metacognitive study uh, for strategies in student learning. Metacognitive, all that means is thinking about thinking, or how do we learn something? How do we take some data that's in a book, put it in our mind, and then get to a point where we can recall that data on demand? These illusions of competence, what happens is, is when we got the book in front of us and we're reading the material and we're kind of fluent in that material... Being fluent in that material and understanding that material is not the same thing as being able to recall that material at a later date, your memory. And so the term for it is called illusions of competence. In her book, she gives you strategies on how to overcome that. But it's this idea, this illusions of competence that I want to bring up. Because I think that just like illusions of competence, we as Christians can suffer illusions of righteousness of our own accord. The book is open. The word is in front of us. We're reading it. We agree with it. We understand it. We are fluent in its text. But it proclaims that God is righteous, and it proclaims that we are not. But somewhere along the line, we think that we're righteous of our own accord. But we're not the first ones to do it. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to enter into uh, John chapter 21, and we're going to talk about Peter. In the chapter of, in John chapter 21, if there's anything, if there's anything in the Bible that I think that any any one scripture that encapsulates in one small snapshot what God's plan is for humankind, I think it's in this in this one chapter, right? We have God, Creator, God the Son, standing at a fireside. And he's talking to Brent man, broken man. Happens to be Peter at the time. And right there, he's offering this man breakfast. He's offering him warmth. But most importantly, he's offering him reconciliation unto himself. And that's where we're at. 
Is it possible that Peter suffered from illusions of righteousness? I think it is. Is it possible that the, all that time that, G, that Peter spent with Jesus, walking with him and talking with him and learn, and sitting at his feet, that somehow, some way, he believed that he had righteousness of his own accord? I think he did. I think we do. We spend time in church. We spend time with each other. We spend time in the Word. We do church things, right? And somewhere along the line, we forget that it's God's righteousness that covers us, and we think that we're righteous of our own. Let's bring this into a little bit of context, and for that, what I want to do is, if I can get this technology working for me, we'll go to the next... uh, Next one. That's all right. I want to talk a little bit briefly about Peter's timeline. He was born Simon, son of Jonah, in a Galilean town in Bethsaida, somewhere around 1 B.C. He was a fisherman. We know that. And somewhere in 25 to 27 A.D., he got married. He had children. And then he moved to Capernaum with his family and his mother-in-law. His brother Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist and kind of introduced Peter to Jesus. And in 30 AD, Jesus called Simon and Andrew, or yeah, yeah, Simon and Andrew from the fishing boat to follow him. And they picked everything up and they left and they followed him. I want you to go back in your memory a little bit more. And some of you have grown up in the church, and you're thinking about the disciples, and sometimes when we think about the disciples and we think about the fishermen, sometimes we're thinking about, well, when I was growing up, it was flannel graph, right? And they got the little flannel graph, and they put it up on the board, and you got the fish. Some of you who are younger, maybe cartoons, right? But what I really want you to think about when you think about Peter and Andrew as fishermen, so I want you to think about that show, The uh, World's Deadliest Catch. Right? I want you to think about those fishermen that are on the docks or in the back of that boat that are out there in the middle of the night going through the storms, going through the wind, going through that cold time. These are rugged men. And I, I would venture to say that Peter, if he watched that show, said, those guys got it easy. Right? They were out there in the middle of the night rowing that boat out, then setting sail. Casting nets on the, by their hand, pulling it in by their hand, suffering the environment. They were rugged men. They were manly men. They were loud. They were stinky in the morning. They had all those fish. They were gutting them, right? And they were bringing them to market. That's what I want you to think about when you think about Peter, when he gets called by Jesus, Peter and Andrew. I like the little flannel graph, but this is really the kind of man that we're talking about. A man, a man's man, who probably has a little bit of pride, who has a little bit of what we would call in America bootstrap, right? Who's tough on his own accord. But he follows Jesus. And he sees Jesus cure his mother-in-law. And another time he sees he's out fishing, unable to catch, and Jesus says, hey, cast it over here on this side or a little bit deeper. And his nets are full and they start to tear. Somewhere in 30 AD, Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. 
Petros. Later on, in between 31 and 32, Peter witnesses Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. He witnesses Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves of fish, or five loaves of bread and two fish. If you're a military-minded man like, like I am and what I grew up on, when you think about a man that can feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, who can raise people from the dead, who can defeat you? What is battle damage? What is the logistics of finding a place where you can get food and water? It's nothing. There's nobody that can defeat that. And I'm sure that was in Peter's mind when he saw that. Peter walked on water. He didn't do it of his own accord. Jesus helped him walk on water, and then when he started to look around, obviously he fell in the water. And to Jesus, or to correction, to Peter, the special information that Jesus was deity, that he was the Messiah, that was given to him, to him. And he's the one, the first one to proclaim it. And Jesus told Peter after that proclamation that he would build his church on that. Then later on as we go along, Jesus tells the disciples of what his plan is. His plan to die and be resurrected. And Peter actually rebukes God. Peter knows, just not too long ago, Peter declared that Jesus was God. But now he's turning around and rebuking him. I mean, at what point do you think that you are more right than God? Somewhere he did. Let's see what else Peter saw. He was on the mountain of transfiguration. He saw Moses and he saw Elijah. And he offered to build them tabernacles. These are big events for a fisherman. And in 33 AD, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And Peter said, I will never deny you. Then shortly before the that fateful night, Jesus took Peter and a couple other disciples into the garden and they were praying and he asked them to watch. And Peter fell asleep. Couldn't even do that. And I don't know, maybe he was frustrated with his inability to to stay awake during a prayer. Maybe he was frustrated with Jesus' declaration that he would deny him three times when they came down or came out of that garden and they were, the, the crowd came to arrest Jesus. Peter pulled out his sword using military might and cut the ear off the servant of the high priest. Jesus told him to put it away and healed the man's ear. And I don't know, maybe out of curiosity, but all the, the rest of the disciples, they flee at this scene. And then Jesus, or I'm sorry, Peter and uh, John, I believe, follow at a distance. And as they take Jesus into the court of the high priest to start his trial, John goes in first, Peter can't, because he knows somebody, right? And then Peter's hanging out outside. John gets him in, and as he's walking in, the slave girl that, opens and closes the gate, says, aren't you one of them? 
No, no, not me. He goes in. It's cold. As the night wears on, it gets colder and colder, and he gets closer and closer to that fire. Gets closer to those charcoals, and twice, two times more, he's asked, Do you know Jesus? Aren't you one of them? And both times he denies it. And on the third time, so that's three times now, and on the third time, we all know what happens. The rooster crows, and Peter realizes what he just did. And he's grieved, and he runs away. So this is where we're at. This is the man that we're getting ready to read about in John chapter 21. A failure. When you look at his, the manly man portion of him, he failed. He was a coward. He crumbled in front of a slave girl. The guy who just pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of somebody. The guy who just proclaimed that he would never deny Jesus crumbled in front of a servant girl and crumbled in front of others and denied him and ran away. So here he is. He's getting ready to go out. If you'll join me in John chapter 21, chapter 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to him, said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going to, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom loved Jesus, who Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So he goes out, frustrated of his own failures as a disciple, perhaps frustrated of his own failures as a man. He has one thing left to turn to, and that's his profession. And he goes out because he at least knows how to fish. And he spends all night, and he catches nothing. And now Peter is absolutely broken. All the illusions are gone. All the illusions of his own manhood, 
the illusions of his ability to provide for himself and his profession, the illusions of him being righteous enough to be a disciple. They're all gone. This is the man who jumped out of the boat and swam a hundred yards and walked up to that fire. And Jesus, I, I don't know about you guys, but I have a pretty good imagination. And sometimes when I imagine this scene, it is one of the weirdest scenes, but it's one of the most profound scenes, right? You got suck, soaking wet Peter standing there out of breath. And our Lord, I'm not sure how many days he was alive at this time, but he's in a dead body, a body that's been raised from the dead, standing on the fire cooking breakfast. It's a weird scene. I don't know why that, why, why, why this, this scene comes in, but, but think about this. This is the exchange of God and man. God's final plan. He's standing there talking to man. He is, God came to the earth. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified for our sins. He is now raised from the dead. And his chief guy that who's going to start the church is broken. He's absolutely shattered and there's nothing of him left. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. I think this is the perfect time for Jesus to reconcile him, to restore him, so that he can get out of the way. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about his reconciliation. Let's go through here. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times, Jesus asked Simon if he loves him. When I was preparing for this presentation, I dug a little bit in there, and I found something out that I didn't know. I knew, I knew that there was three words for love in the Greek, right? Eros, phylos, and agape. But what I didn't know is that in this exchange... Jesus uses the term agape. Simon, do you agape me? And Peter, or Simon, responds, yes, I follow you. So agape is the grand love. It is the love of God for man. It is supposed to be the love of man for God. It is the, the greatest love there is. It's the love that lays down its life for its friends. Philo is the love of friendship, fellowship. It's the family love. It's a high love, but it's not as high and grand as agape. And when Jesus uses the term agape, do you agape me? And he replies, I philo you. You know I philo you. 
He's not even, this is what I think. Some people say it's stylistic, that it really doesn't mean anything. Some people say, no, it actually means something. And this is where I'm at with it. He doesn't trust himself to say agape. He's broken. He says, I follow you. He knows that he follows him, but he doesn't trust himself to say, I agape you, because he just failed him. He denied him three times. He's got nothing left. And then when he asks him the second time, do you agape me? Again, he refuses to reply, agape. He says, I philo you. And on the third one, Jesus drops it down. And I think this is what grieved him. He says, do you philo me? Almost as if to say, do you even philo me? I don't know. But that's what I think. And he's grieved. And he says, you know everything. I'm paraphrasing. You know everything. You know I follow you. It looks like a pretty harsh time. But really, it's a gracious and wonderful event. Each time that he questions him, he gives him an assignment. He restores him. He reconciles Peter to his previous position. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Each one of those restores Peter to where he was. It reconciles him to where he was before the denial. But I think this time Peter's in a better spot. Not only does it reconcile Peter because three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And three times he proclaims his love for him. But also he restores him completely. When he gives Peter the honor in these next scriptures of dying in the cause of Christ, there is no greater honor for a Christian than to die in the service of Christ. And he says it. Right here in, uh, if I can find it. Truly, uh, verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. This Fire side, this fire scene is representative of us, of all mankind. Like Peter, we also suffer from illusions of righteousness. When the word is open and we're reading it and we become familiar with it, fluent with it, we sometimes think that we're righteous of our own accord. And when the book is closed and we go about our day-to-day lives and someone cuts us off in traffic, or when we look at somebody on Facebook and we become envious of their, maybe it's a real life, or when we try to post on Facebook to make other people envious of us. Whatever it may be, we fail. We fail all the time. Or sometimes we fail when somebody starts making fun of religious people or or Christian and we're silent. We don't stand to defend the gospel. 
Peter failed. He had it all wrong. He thought that his way was better than God's way. He could not fathom seeing Jesus on a Roman cross. And filled with anger and pride, he pulled out the sword to try and prevent it. Filled with pride, he entered the court of the high priest thinking that he could be there while Jesus went through the trial. And next to a charcoal fire, soaking wet, our Lord served Peter breakfast. The man who denied him three times, he brought him breakfast. He brought him warmth, and he brought him, most of all, reconciliation to himself. He stands before us today, offering reconciliation. Before you and before I, he stands. In Romans 3.20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I encourage you today, open the door. He's standing there ready to feed you, ready to feed me. And three times Peter had a chance to repent of those awful words, and three times he proclaimed his love for him. He was, in my mind, too humbled to use the term agape. And Jesus restored Peter. And when Peter finally got out of the way, shortly thereafter, we see him again. We see him in Acts, stand up and proclaim the gospel. We see him stand up, speak out, and people from all different countries with all different languages heard the gospel for the first time through Peter's mouth. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, healed a man who was lame from birth. Peter was thrown in prison for proclaiming the gospel when he was told not to. And the Holy Spirit opened the doors and let him out. Through through Peter, the Holy Spirit raised a little girl from the dead, and Peter was the first to offer the gospel to the Gentiles, a Roman centurion no less. God moved through Peter. God reconciled Peter. He restored him. And God stands ready to reconcile you and reconcile me and to work through us. We just have to come to the point where we understand it's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. Have you been reconciled to the Son, Jesus Christ? Have you been restored to him? If you're here and you haven't, I invite you to do so today. If you don't know how to do that, please come see me or one of the elders after church and we'll be happy to show you the way. Have you had breakfast with the Lord? If you haven't, I invite you to do so today. Please pray with me.